In Christ, God forgave you. As in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any such inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful in how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm thinking, I was reflecting on how that's changed and then I'm like, hang on, I think I've just stopped us singing a psalm, hymn or spiritual song and the irony caught me and then I realised that that was meant to happen before the Bible reading. So uh, the irony didn't uh, get lost on me uh, in that passage as I'm about to preach to you. But this morning, we're actually going to focus on the first seven verses uh, of this passage. It's a big passage and I don't want to cover all of it because I think... Uh, I think it would just get a bit lost in there somewhere. So I've decided to focus uh, on the first seven verses. But let me pray and, uh, and we'll, we'll have a closer look. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are with us and that your Holy Spirit is the one who uses the word, your word, as the double-edged sword to convict us of our sin, to uh, re, re, rejuvenate our hearts, to 
to, to bring a joy into us to be able to live a life worthy of you. Father God, as we open this text now, we pray that you will help us to grapple with it in a way which brings you great glory, but also in a way which convicts us and moves us to action. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully most of you, if you were here last week, will remember something about the sermon. Uh, I'll just recap. Uh, I spoke a lot about clothing. You remember the images now? We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 uh, to 32. And Paul exhorted us. He, he, could, he really brought to us this idea to take off our old clothes, which is the old self before Christ, and put on our new clothes, the clothes that come and are given to us uh, by the Lord Jesus in our salvation. Remember, I talked about a wardrobe, and when you open the wardrobe, you need to take out the labels marked righteousness and holiness, not to dig back into the old clothes and put those on again. We have been called to a new life. See, we are not, uh, we're not, I think I used the word, an up, uh, what was that word? We are not an upcycle. There you go. We're not to be upcycling our life. We're not like a piece of old furniture that we're just going to make look a bit better again. No, it's more like a building where it's a knockdown rebuild. The very foundations have to be ripped out and Christ has to be laid as the foundation. That's not our job. He does that. So your life has been laid on the foundation of Christ and as you put on the clothes and as the Holy Spirit renews you, then the building is built on that foundation. We're not to go and try to live uh, in the old way and you can't mix and match the patterns of your old and new life. Remember, the old life was full of falsehoods out of your mouth, the new life truths. The old life, anger and bitterness. The new life, forgiveness. The old life didn't work but steal. The new life worked so it could give to others. Uh, the old life would break people down with its words. The new life would build them up. Uh, the old life became desensitised to the impact of sin on your life and other people's lives. Now we grieve sin with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5, 1 to 20 is really a continuation uh, of uh, these ideas and this passage. And you'll see in the NIV, there is no gap. It just flows straight uh, into chapter 5. And it's really continuing this idea of living a life in holiness and righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, just so you're... The, the reason I want to give this recap up front is because there's a verse or two in here which I want to focus on a bit later, which can be very hard to get your head around and you can apply it in the wrong way if you have the wrong understanding. Ephesians is split into two parts primarily, chapters 1 to 3, which is what we call the indicative or the theology or the doctrine or the teaching. And then chapters 4 uh, onwards are really what we like to say as the imperative. Now an imperative can be defined as an unavoidable requirement that demands action. So the foundation of the doctrine is set, now go and do this in response. 
And Paul often creates that in his books, in his letters. He'll start with the indicative, the teaching, and then he goes on in the second half to give you the application or the imperative. So if you remember back to chapter 1, which is really where we found this foundation of doctrine, uh, in verses 3 to 10, there were some massive ideas. And I'm going to read those again because I want us just to revisit this idea of what we have as Christians, what it is that we've been blessed with and what kind of doctrinal realities, if you like, that we have. So I'm going to read it for you and I think it's coming up behind me. So verses 3 to 10 in chapter 1, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity, so that's an imperative, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." Now, there's a lot of big words in there, and we have covered it, and I'm not going to go through it again. But we have been blessed. We are adopted into our sonship and daughtership of, of, of God. We have been redeemed, bought back from our slavery to sin and death with a price, and that price was the blood of Jesus on the cross. We have forgiveness. We have been set free from our debt to God that the wrath and judgment of God that was upon us, we have been set free from. We are now free from judgment and his wrath because Christ has taken that upon himself on the cross as our substitute. And then in order, he says in verse uh, 4, to be holy and blameless in his sight and in verse 10, to be unified. And really, the rest of the letter is expanding on, on much of that. And you'll see Paul begins chapter 5 by saying this in verses 1 and 2. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, when he says, therefore, he's flowing on from last week. He's saying, put off the old, put on the new. Therefore, he doesn't say, follow Paul's example, follow someone else's example. There's only one example that has ever perfectly lived that life we need to live. Follow God's example. But do it because you are dearly loved children just as Christ loved us. Many of us haven't had good fatherly examples in our life. You see, this isn't a father that is just ready to beat you if you have not done what he wants. This is a father 
who will discipline you, absolutely. But he is always there to embrace you in all those moments and he brings you in out of love and he's willing to lay down his life for you. Next week, we're going to look at this as we look at submission to one another and husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. You're going to enjoy that one. We're going to look at that next week. I'm not going to enjoy this week, but it's going to be fun. I might ask Ellie to stay away. See, but a father, he makes clear to us that he loves us even when he's disciplining us. Because he sacrifices himself for us. And so he says, how does that love manifest? Well, it's in the most countercultural and counterintuitive way. How are you meant to follow his example? By sacrificing your own desires, your own wants, your own life for those whom you have been called to love. And who have you been called to love? Well, Jesus said, well, some, all the commandments up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. So sacrifice your life for his kingdom in response of his love for you and love your neighbour as yourself. Just as Christ, it says in verse 2, sacrificed himself for you. Follow God's example. Be what you were called to be. Be like God himself. So go on. Go and be like God. That's what Paul's saying. Well, are you overwhelmed yet? If you're not overwhelmed, then perhaps you haven't grasped the extent of who Christ is and what he's done. This isn't a call to be happy, happy, joy, joy. This is a call to a real, sacrificial, and at times, suffering love. And there it is, verse 1. Follow God's example. Well, Paul then moves on to give more details about what this looks like in practical terms, in real terms, what holiness and righteousness is. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In other words, if a people have been called by a holy God to be holy, they should be holy even as God is holy. This is not a new idea in the Bible. It says not even a hint, not a speck, not a rumour, not a perception of sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. When you are down the pub with your mates, guess what? You should look different as much as you don't want to. Overwhelmed yet? We're in the, living in an era of sanitization and purification. I don't think it's ever been like this in my life before. COVID has changed everything. Pre-COVID, I was conscious of people handling my food, but meh. I wasn't too bothered about it. 
when I go into the bakery and I see her handling all the change for the person in front of me and then takes my croissant with that same glove. I'm like, hmm, she's a nice lady. I'll just, I'll just eat my croissant. I enjoy coffee. I remember distinctly one time I sat down, I was at a coffee, uh, at a cafe and we were waiting for our coffee and the girl, I was up in Karatha, uh, the girl, she's obviously new, she, I don't think she'd been, I'd never seen her before, and she was holding the saucer with one hand, as you do, but she was shaking a bit. So she put her other hand under and then put her thumb on top of my cup so she didn't spill it. And I could see it sloshing against her thumb as she was walking towards me. Now, I knew she was new. It was a relatively small town. What does the pastor do? Oh, he goes, oh, thank you. That's lovely. And so I went ahead and drank my coffee because I didn't want to upset her. I felt my stomach go a little queasy. But hey, now if that was now, I can guarantee you you may have a headline, pastor blows up over coffee. I'd recoil in horror. I'd demand my coffee get changed because it's been contaminated. We can't contaminate anything. I'd feel bad for her. But there shouldn't be a hint of contamination in food handling, particularly in a COVID era when the consequences are severe. See, in the same way, what we are being told here is there shouldn't be a hint of impurity amongst God's holy people. Not a speck, not a rumour, not a perception, not a chance, not a hint. Because the consequences are severe. Well, if you're not overwhelmed yet, let's have a look at verses 5 to 7. For of this you can be sure, the consequences... No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, I'd ask you all to get up and leave if you... Uh, a qualifi- aren't qualified, that could just be embarrassing because I'd be preaching to no, I wouldn't even be preaching because I'd be out there with you, wouldn't I? See, I have no doubt these verses, along with some others that get drawn together, have spawned a great deal of the grief that many of us have felt from preachers and churches that are ready to call out and even name and shame people who do not live up to their perceived standard of holiness. I may have mentioned this before, I think I have, but when I was up uh, north, uh, I had a young couple come to the church from Holland. In their church back in Holland, they, they show, like I noticed, because it's a small church, I noticed they were never taking Lord's Supper. So I caught up with them, went over their place, just had a chat, and they said, oh, back in our church of 400, only 13 were deemed worthy to ever take the Lord's Supper. The rest of us just had to watch them and stand in awe that anyone could satisfy the requirements. I have sat uh, with countless people, some uh, in our own church, and I'm not saying to do with the church, but from previous experiences or whatever it might be, and some in previous churches that I've been to, that are broken, that are ashamed, that are carrying guilt, that are carrying all these things because week in, week out, 
They've been told you're not doing enough. You don't live up to the holiness of God, the standard. You should, 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 should. And they go away just feeling completely worthless and just feel a wretch afterwards. You know what? There is a place for that. To a degree. To a point. So what do we make of this passage? What do we, do we ignore it? We're a people of grace, aren't we? Hey, come on in. Everyone's welcome here. What are you even standing up there talking about this stuff for? Let me read you verse 5 again. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now earlier, the reason I went back is because we, if we don't hold firm to the indicative, the doctrinal teaching at the beginning of this letter, we will take this and we will burden people and burden people until they just disappear out of the church and they never, they never even come, come anywhere near Christ again. See, and I think the confusion that happens so often with verses like this, but in this particular instance, is it's taken out of the context of the entire letter. And look at verse 6. And often they're put together and a conclusion is drawn. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. So effectively, we logically put those together and we say, well, if you are not preaching people to be holy and righteous and telling them that they have to, and you're not being the moral police as the leader of the church, then you have empty words. You are deceiving them. They'll often put those two things together. So the church then becomes exactly what the world thinks it is. A bunch of hypocrites who think they have the moral authority to call people to account while, binding, uh, while blind to their own shortcomings. Well, I think the key to understanding what's going on here is both context, but also understanding what empty words Paul is talking about. Now, one of the early challenges of the church in Paul's day was Gnosticism. There was some overlap with Greek philosophy. It was an understanding of a dualism. And if you can understand this, you'll get a grasp a bit more of what's happening here. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. They valued knowledge. They valued what was in the head. And they classified what we, our reason, our ability to think, our knowledge as the spiritual. The physical, the material was irrelevant, completely irrelevant. So some of the teaching that was going on is, well, you've been saved, you are already, you are already, we call it a, 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 um, an over-realised eschatology, if you like, an over-realised bringing in of the end times. You are already with Christ because of the Holy Spirit. You are already there. It doesn't matter what you do with your physical self because you've already been resurrected spiritually. Your body's going to waste away. 
So you might as well just live and enjoy pleasure in this life until we go, uh, until we die. Paul is addressing that here. He is saying they are empty words. Don't listen to them. They're deceiving you with this idea. See, Paul is saying the physical is the goal of redemption. One of the core doctrinal statements that you cannot, cannot negotiate, it's non-negotiable, is a bodily resurrection from the dead is what we await. Paul expands on this in 1 Corinthians 15, a very long chapter of this wonderful reality that our bodies are being replaced, sown perishable, raised imperishable. And it's important that we value the physical, the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, comes to reside within you, not just to get you to the end goal, but to renew you from the inside out. Now I want to, I'm talking doctrine this morning, I don't do it every week, okay, but I want to do it this morning. Because this is so important for us. If you grasp these two things about your life, you are set free from that burden. I believe that. You need to understand justification. The doctrine of justification. Now I'm about to do something which I may get kicked out of my accreditation being a Baptist. Um, I'm about to quote the Westminster Shorter Confession. Now, Baptists don't have creeds. Our creed is the Bible. Well, creeds can be very helpful uh, to help us understand the Bible. But let me just, I just think it's a wonderful, a wonderful description of justification. And it says this, this is question 33 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. We heard that back in chapter 1. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now this is a forensic, it's, a, it, it's, it's terminology which is in a court of law. This is a declaration that is placed on our life. Christ's perfect life is imputed. We are declared, not injected, He hasn't made us righteous. We have become righteous in his sight because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The perfect life that did not deserve death died on our behalf, not just to pay the punishment for our sin, but for his life to be clothed on us so that we could come into God's sight and he sees us as righteous. We are declared forensically in a court of law. The judge's hammer comes down. You are righteous in the judge's sight. Which means the wrath of God is no longer upon us. Because it's been poured out upon Christ on the cross. That is what happens at the moment of your salvation. It doesn't have to continually happen. When you put your faith in faith alone, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared by the judge 
to be righteous in his sight. You are set free. You are forgiven. You don't have to carry the burden of your guilt, the burden of your shame. But that doesn't mean you can go on singing. Sinning. You can go on singing. You can't go on sinning. You don't want me to go on singing. That would just be a nightmare. But you don't go on sinning. Paul addresses this over and over. In Corinthians, he goes, what shall we say then? We go on sinning so grace can increase the more? Well, by no means. Don't you understand that Christ died for you? No, no, live a life worthy of that sacrifice. And he's saying the same thing here. But how do we do this? Well, we do it through the doctrine of sanctification. Now, unlike justification, which is a declaration made over your life when you come to Christ in faith, sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit renewing you from the inside out. It is that clothing in righteousness and holiness. See, what Paul's saying here is when you get to that final day, you should see a life which is completely different from the moment that you were justified. Now, he's not saying here that if you have any single sin in your life, you are not in Christ. What he's saying is that your life will reflect whether you have been justified. If you have been saved, if you have truly been set free, if the Holy Spirit is in you, the fruit of that will be your life. And you will see holiness, you will see righteousness reflect the reality that Christ has saved you. And so on that final day, in a twinkling of an eye, in, in, the, in an absolute moment, as you're being sanctified over life, you will not be made perfectly holy and righteous in this life. But on that day, at the point that God has determined, you will be changed like that. You will be changed like that. And then when Revelation says nothing impure will enter that city, you will be in and of yourselves holy, righteous and worthy. But you will not get that if you have not been justified. See, we are very good at saying, Lord, Lord, Jesus says. Many of you will say, Lord, Lord. But many of you will say, I did not know you. Judas Iscariot, Lord, 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 Lord. Meanwhile, his life was betraying. His life was selling the Messiah, who he called Lord for 30 pieces of silver. See, what Paul's doing, he's saying, if your life does not reflect the realities of your justification, your salvation, then are you justified at all? I'm not saying you need to have a perfect life, but you should see a grieving of sin in your life now. All these things we looked at last week. You should see a desire 
to want to please God, not turn away from him. Can you perfectly do it? No. Are you set free from your past, present, future sin? Absolutely. But gee, your heart is now wanting to, uh, wanting to give great joy to your Father in heaven by being holy just as he is holy. Paul's primary thing here is that the teaching that was permeating the church was that don't worry about your life now. It doesn't matter. All you've got to do is believe the gospel and you are spiritually already with Christ. He says, no, the body matters, the life matters now and it will be a demonstration and a great glory to God as the Holy Spirit renews you and as you get on board with that program, as you walk into that wardrobe, if you've got a walk-in wardrobe or like me as you open the doors and you pull out those clothes of holiness and righteousness, that's your desire. And then the day that you put on the old clothes, you find yourself on your knees saying, sorry, Lord, and asking forgiveness, knowing full well that you have it because you have been justified. If you don't hold on to your justification, don't bother pursuing sanctification because it will drive you into a hopelessness just like Martin Luther in his Catholicism before he came to know the gospel. Martin Luther, this is the great reformer back in the 1500s. He could never do enough. He could never be good enough. No matter what he was doing, and he did a lot, he saw another bit of sin. He saw something else. Well, that's what sanctification looks like without justification. You're constantly just worried about getting God offside. No, you're on a path with the foundation of your building being what has been won for you in Christ. Justification is the foundation. Sanctification is the building that is being built. So to sum all that up, don't be overwhelmed. We're not called to be overwhelmed by this doctrine. If you remember, I, I read Psalm 130 at the beginning. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, people of God, those who have put their trust in Jesus, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. You have been redeemed. You have been set free. You have been adopted. <laughs> Just make sure that you're on that right journey and you should see that reflection in your desire to be holy 
just as the Lord God is holy. Father God, we thank you that you are not a God of just wanting us to be good people, that you have set a foundation that is as solid as any foundation can be. Just as in Romans 8, Lord, we're told we can have full confidence. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't take away the desire for you, the desire of you for our life to be like you. That was our call to holiness and righteousness. Father God, we pray this morning that on a foundation of justification, a foundation of being set free from all of our sin, that we pursue the mandate called upon our life, the great will of you for our life of holiness and righteousness. Father God, I pray for those who are battling a sin that they just cannot shake. I pray that you will give them freedom to bring those realities to you knowing that they have been set free but father help them not to give up not to give up on pursuing healing in those things and to call upon you the holy spirit to sanctify them in that area father god we pray for us as a church that we will be a church that is clear on our purpose on our gospel that we will bring people in on a foundation of christ not ashamed, not guilted into doing things, but set free to do things which please you. So, Father God, be with us this week and we pray a blessing over all of us and those online and those who cannot make it this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.